Welcome to another edition of the Survival Podcast. Today is Wednesday, November 3rd, 2021. This is episode 2981 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a longtime community member I'm about to bring online here. His name is Jake Robinson. Some of you know him. Some of you don't. He's uh, he's really a great guy. We, 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 you'll even hear about it. We do pick on him some. And a lot of the picking on him, he he's he's earned. Uh, but he's really a, a smart guy and a hard worker and a hell of a researcher. And I've been really impressed with some of the things he's been doing over the last couple of years, uh, specifically in, in the way he's gotten into raw land. And we'll be talking about some of that today. I was thinking, what do I call this episode? You know, because I want the, the, the episode title to actually explain what we're talking about today. And what I came up with, with was from the darkness of political dichotomy to anarcho-liberation. Even though we're going to talk very little about that directly today, the whole thing is really about that. You'll hear how Jake at one time was deeply mired uh, in the political system, believing that was the only way to affect change. and was ignoring the things that he had actually already done that had had more impact on his life. He's an entrepreneur at, at heart. And he'd had all these successes on the entrepreneurial side of things. And when he realized the world was all screwed up, he didn't realize that that same mindset was his 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 path to liberation, and uh, we we broke him over the years. He was he was pretty big on the whole dichotomy and everything. And years of coming here to the workshop and dealing with all the TSP crew. Eventually, he just said, "I quit. I'm an anarchist now." He, I mean, he literally did that one night here, and he's a good dude. And we got a lot of great stuff to talk about today. We'll have Jake on in just a moment. Before I bring Jake on, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one is JM Bullion. That's where I go for silver and gold. That's where you should go for silver and gold. Now, what you're thinking, Jack, don't you always talk about cryptocurrency? I do. And then the other camp is always like, well, you need gold, gold and silver, right? Well, I don't, I don't live in either of those camps. I'm a believer in actual diversified investments. And that means that I've laid up in stacked sats and I've laid up in stacked silver. And if I'm going to buy any silver, I'm kind of done stacking for a while. But if I was going to buy any, like if I decided today, hey, you know, I'm pick up a few more silver eagles or something like that, I know where I'm going to go. I'm going to go to Jam Bullion. And I'm not going to go there just because they pay a sponsorship bill every month. I'm going to go there because, well, I'm going to pay a better price than going to Monex or Atmex or Lear Capital or anybody like that. I'm already going to pay less. Then I'm going to get my shipping for free. And then I'm going to do it for myself if there's a problem. But this is why you should do it. If there ever is a problem, there just ain't been for years. I'm going to go and I'm going to make an email over to Michael, who is the president of the company. He's going to fix it. And he's going to do something that I, when it first time it happened, I was like, that's the way it should be, but why isn't it ever? He did have a few logistical issues. And I'm talking like seven, eight years ago. And what he said was, thank you for pointing out th this out to me so that I can personally see to it and fix it. Um I don't know why I'd go anywhere else. Oh, and if you're an MSB member, of course, I'm an MSB member of my own MSB, you get a discount on silver and gold. Are you kidding? That's not you know, something that you find very often because it's a thin margin business. JM Bullion does all of that for you. So stack your silver and get it at JM Bullion. Stack your gold, get it at JM Bullion. Now, what about the other precious metal? Copper jacketed lead. Uh, I was approached, God, it's got to be six or seven years ago as well by Bulk Ammo about becoming a sponsor of the show, and I'm like, no, I, th I think I can help you. 
And that's one of the things I always look at with a sponsor is, do the, are they going to do right by my audience? But the other side is, can can I help you sell more product? I don't want to sponsor. I don't care how much money you have as a sponsor. If I don't think you're going you're gonna to get a good return, I won't take you. And bulk ammo, I was like, yeah, I, I think I know some people who might want to buy some ammo in bulk. And, uh, man, I'll tell you what, that was a good decision to bring them on. I've never had a complaint. Everybody says you're really right about how quickly they ship. They all, as soon as I email them, say you guys want to renew. All I hear is get him a check. I mean, they're just great to deal with, and they do a discount for MSB members as well. So stack, stack precious metal, and stack the other precious metal, copper jacketed lead. You know where to do it, bulkammo.com. With that, let's go ahead and get our special guest on today. Uh, this is uh, Jake Robinson. Um, He he has been a member of this community for so long, I don't even remember when it started. We actually talk about that toward the beginning today. I didn't realize that I met him all the way back in North Carolina um, uh, at a prepper expo. But what, my first memory of him, he came to the first TSP workshop I ever did. I think he's been to all but one or two of everyone. He's definitely probably been to more than anybody. I guarantee if we do a contest, he's been to the most. He's either going to tie or win at the next workshop. Um, he supported everything that I've ever done. Um, again, we do pick on him sometimes, but we all, like I said, we also love him. He's a great guy. He has done some amazing stuff, and he's never afraid to try something new. And that's one of the reasons I, I was happy to have him on when he has to come on the air with that. Hey, Jake, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack. I'm excited to be here, I think. You think? We're going <laughs> to torment you a little bit today. I'm going to like open it for questions at some point. We're just going to pound you with him. For those that are new to Jake Robinson, he likes to ask questions in the middle of other people's presentations. We're not actually going to do that today because these people, unlike you at a workshop, can't be disruptive because all they can do is type comments in. So you're going to get on. I can't even see the comments. So. Oh, uh, well, you can see comments if I let you. So you can see them pop up like that. Oh, okay. That's fine. Well, I know Brian, Brian Young is not going to be on the day, so nothing can phase me. <laughs> so, hey, for, for people that maybe don't know Jake Robinson, tell us a little bit about your background. Um, that's a big part of what we're going to talk about today, but let, let's go back to like high school shit or whatever. And how you, how did you end up just doing what you did professionally? Uh, just so people right. kind of get connected with you personally for those that don't know you who haven't had the extreme displeasure of meeting you yet. Well, I, I thought I wanted to be an electrical engineer. So I went to, came out of high school. I went to college. I dropped out, uh, after a couple of years, didn't like it. I kept thinking to myself, I hate electrical engineering in the school, but maybe if I get a degree in it and I go out and start working in it, I'll like it. I'm like, well, wait a minute, what if I don't like it? I wasted four years of my life. What I really wanted to do was become an actor, and that was not really, you know, cool with my parents because they're like, what? And uh, I literally dropped out of uh, college, and I moved to Nashville and became an actor. I actually snagged a speaking role with Jessica Lang and Ed Harris and I had my 15 minutes of fame. And I could have probably gone on and, and maybe possibly become successful. That movie was the first movie uh, John Goodman was in. And we actually read for the same role. He got, he got a, a different part than me. And that was his first silver screen. So I maybe could have done it. But I look back now and say, I'm so damn glad I didn't become famous because I don't want to be chased by paparazzi. Believe it or not, it could happen, right? I mean, even Alec Baldwin, as a dick as he is, he gets paparazzi around him. So anyway, uh, I came, I, I, I came to my senses and I, I kind of discovered sales. Uh, I read a book 
called Guerrilla Marketing by J. Conrad Levinson. It was the first business book I'd ever read. And it just opened my mind up to marketing and entrepreneurship and things of that nature. And so I started looking for opportunities like that. And I bounced around in a bunch of different sales jobs. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to find something you can really sink your teeth into. And I um, wound up <clears throat> getting involved in a three-way partnership and franchise Papa John's Pizza. And I moved from Nashville, Tennessee up to Maryland. Oh, my God. Uh, that was an aisle. <laughs> I stood in line to get a permit to put in our overhead um, uh, uh, event for our, our pizza ovens. And the guy in front of me got turned down because, uh, for a, a septic tank cause, uh, or for a, a, he was adding a bedroom to his basement. And he said, I'm sorry, uh, you can't do it because your septic tank's not big enough. You'll have to, you'd have to get a, a second septic tank or a bigger one. And the guy behind me was getting a permit to build a doghouse. Like, crap, this is like bureaucracy city. So I got, I started learning about the state back then, but of course I couldn't get enough of it back then. I was plugged into the matrix. Anyway, I, I sold out my partnership, came back to Tennessee. I knew a guy that was in financial services and yeah, I was a financial liar, but actually um, was in, connected with a guy that launched Dave Ramsey. So if you at least think that Dave Ramsey's idea of get out of debt and invest your money and that kind of thing. And by term life insurance, which is what I offer. Then I did, the, I did, a, I think I did a good service for folks. I was in that business for about, well, I'm still in it technically. I was in it a, a good 20 years. And then the company opened up in England back in 2003. I went to England, uh, opened up. We're like a franchise. So we're an independent contractor. So I didn't have to go. It's like, oh, you need to go to England. We raised our hand. My, my wife's parents are from England. Uh, they're from Manchester, England, and they moved to Manchester, Tennessee, which is kind of strange. And so anyway, I, uh, I, I wound up over there for three years, and then our parent company pulled the plug on us. We were doing pretty good, actually. And uh, I kind of got discouraged by that when I came back, so I put a lot of effort. I had about 100 people in my business that I hired and trained. I had some people that uh, were, you know, had bet their life on this opportunity that I was with. And it just kind of frustrated me. I came back. But what I did see when I was there was three years of womb to the tomb nanny state that uh, I was exposed to. Like every, anytime you had anything, any conversation with anybody over there about anything, like, well, the government should do something about that. We need to do something. Somebody needs to do something about that. Like, why? So I came back thinking, man, I, I don't want our country to, seem like that could be the path we're on. So when I came back, I thought it would be a smart idea to get involved in politics. <laughs> I mean, and at that time, you were like scared shitless, right? Like, Well, no, no, I wasn't. Yeah, I wasn't. Like impending yet. doom was coming no, in. And no. you, you were in the Matrix. You, I remember well, pictures of you with Ted Cruz saying he smelled like the Constitution. <laughs> no, what? Well, I wasn't. I, I didn't. I didn't have any fear of doom until I came back to the States. I came back in, two, I left in 2003, came back at the, somewhere in 2007. I hadn't discovered you yet. I think yet, were you even on the air at that? When you went on the air in 2008? 2008. Okay. okay. And so I hadn't found you yet, but then we had the big crash and, and I didn't know that there was stuff happening in the U.S. I wasn't paying attention to what was happening in the U.S. I was in England. 
And so I came back and then all of a sudden we had the big stock market crash and the real estate debacle. And I was like, wow, this is bad. I need, and I started looking around for how do you, how do you deal with something like this? And somehow I came across you, came across your show. I started listening to a few episodes here and there. I wasn't like hooked yet. Uh, but, um, and in fact, I thought this kind of weird. The shows that you, used to, you, you that you do when people would call in with a question or send their questions in, those shows I never listened to. It's like I don't care if that guy wants to know how to, you know, how to build a quail uh, house or whatever. I don't. I, I, so I never listened to those shows. I just listened to some of the interviews and some of your uh, shows where you had a specific topic. But as I got to know you better through the podcast, actually those shows are now my favorite shows. You've put a lot of, I know you, you have to put a lot of work in to answer some of those questions. I know you're not that damn smart that you can just do this stuff off the top of your head, but you are pretty damn close to a genius. I think your IQ is up there. Uh, I can't compete. So anyway, uh, that, um, so anyway, um, yeah, I, I, uh, started feeling like things are going to hell in a handbasket and I kept thinking, you know, the plane is about to crash, but if it could just miss the top of that mountaintop, where we could go another 500 uh, miles down the plane. I can, it would give me, maybe, maybe if it, it wouldn't crash this year, if it crashes two years from now, it'll give me enough time to try to start getting prepped up. Cause I wasn't a prepper. I didn't save my, I didn't save my food. Go ahead. I know you're about to say something. You're about to say something. Well, yeah, you know, the, the plane analogy, that was a big thing came from Glenn Beck. And I used to always liken that to like, there's people when they're watching their football team play a game and they're trying to kick a field goal. They like all turn the label of their beer toward the TV as though that's going to influence the ball. And, and, and the analogy in of itself with if you had more time, that would be good. It, that's not the flaw in it. The belief that paying attention to a thing or writing a letter or something was actually going to make the plane stay in the air. That was, that was the fallacy. Like the plane is either going to crash now or next week or next year. Or it's not going to crash at all. It's just going to kind of skid along and come to a, a rolling stop. It's going to do what it's going to do. And, and, and the thing that you, you know that, and this is a probably why you sleep a hell of a lot better 14 years later at night is because what we, what we do here is we turn to the things we do control. So like that plane is going to do what that plane's going to do. But the shit you're doing in your life now, those are all things you tangibly control. And it may have actually been easier for you than for a lot of people. Because you had such an entrepreneurial background. So you were used to like, I made this thing happen. I think for a lot of people, the problem is if they've never done that, the idea that they can is far the government to do something. Yeah. And like what I can do is I can make the government do a thing, but I can't make a difference in my own life. And when you get to the other side of that, you realize how absolutely disconnected from reality that is. Well, but I mean, to be fair to you, some of the stuff y'all were doing, I know you and your wife were doing, were, there were good things locally, like actually reading textbooks and seeing what kids were being taught. And like, that's proven to be important a, a lot as of late. But there's so much of a limitation on that side. And I think probably your life got better when you started like the things that when you put 100% effort into something, you got like 100% result and said, I'm going to put 100% effort in for 1% result. And it felt like that because, you know, when I came back, I felt like maybe I could do something on a, uh, in politics. So I got involved in a local party, and I was a Republican. In fact, my wife was the first Republican ever to be elected to the Registered Deeds Office since the county was formed in 1803. 
And uh, she came in in the Tea Party movement in 2010. They asked, actually asked me to run for that position. I said, hell no. My wife said, I'll do it. And she's been there ever since. But, um, you know, I was thinking that even though I was on one hand, I was like, like something's happening. Something bad's happening. I feel like I'm way behind. I'm running out of time. I'm not prepared. And I'm starting to listen to you. And I'm starting to figure things out. But I'm also plugged into the matrix. You know, you remember, you did run for an office as a libertarian. And you do say the difference between a libertarian and an anarchist is, what, about six months? It's probably more like two it's years. It's six months depending on how many anarchists you talk to. The less anarchists yeah. you talk to, the quicker you'll become one. Two right. years, probably. Right. probably. Yeah, when you have anarchists telling you how fucking stupid you are all the time for being a libertarian, you tend to not want to be part of what they're doing. When you analyze it logically, it's about a six-month walk. And, you know, when I ran for LP, I was approached for it. And it paid $660 a month to be a Texas rep at that time. And I had my, that, that was actually the end of all politics for me in reality, because the, the level of attack I got when I started to even show up on polls was unbelievable. And I wasn't going to win. And I'm like, they're doing this just on the off chance that maybe, you know, I can pull an upset for a shitty state, a state house, like a state Senate position in Texas. You actually can get some things done. A single rep in Texas, I mean, you talk about peeing in the wind. That's all that it is. And what really did it for me was about a few months after that, the attorney that we had retained for one of our corporations heard me talking about it with my CFO. And he walked over to me and put his hand on my shoulder in a very creepy, very, you know, <laughs> yeah, like 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 this deal with the devil type temptation. Like, well, if you want that seat and you're ready to run as a Republican, I can make it happen. And he didn't stutter. He wasn't kidding. And I told him, I said, at this one, I don't want a damn thing to do it. He said, well, that's too bad. We could do a lot of good things together. Now, like I said, that seat has no real power in of itself. But those seats, when you have the connected attached to them, all of a sudden you can get a lot of things done. And that's what his view was, is look what I could do if I get this guy that's already friendly to me on board with me. And, uh, yeah, and I was done. I was like, well, that's how politics works over a $660 a month seat, uh, with per diem for your hotel while you're in Austin once every two years. No, I don't want anything to do with this shit. Well, at least you guys only do it every two years. Yeah. I mean, uh, most states it's every year and they keep piling the crap on. So anyway, um, the first time I, I don't know, you ever remember the first, do you remember the first time we actually met in person? I don't. I have here in my notes. It was in North Carolina at the Prepper Expo at uh at Ron's Prepper Expo, but I, I don't remember meeting you there actually. The first time I really remember meeting you was I think the first workshop we did, first workshop we ever did here with the Hoogle Mounds, and I remember you coming here and bringing a canopy and stuff like that. I don't remember the expo. Yeah, well, um, you had a, a little get together at a bar afterwards, and I had my dad in tow with me. And I remember talking to you, and I remember talking politics. I'm like, now I look back and think, wow, he must think I'm such a, a retard. And how could how could you be listening to me and want to talk this shit? Because people still have to make that journey. I mean, every every new person that logs in to your uh, show and listens to it, some of them are going to be shocked because there's going to be cognitive dissonance. Uh, and then it's well, we excel at some cognitive dissonance, bro. We <laughs> like people turn us on for the first time and they're looking for, I don't know, Alex Jones on a podcast or, you know, uh, how we're going to elect the next president that's going to save the world or the resurrection of the orange man or something. And there's got to be like, a, Oh my God, this is not what I'm looking for. 
it, I guess it depends on the state because what I've learned is a lot of people that are in that state at the same time, they want to learn how to grow their own food. They want to learn how to homestead. They want to learn how to run a business. So if they get plugged into that first, I don't think there's that much of a problem. I think the people that have the biggest negative reaction, the ones that find that first, and then sooner or later, they'll either listen to an old episode or will come up with an episode that talks about the current political climate from an anarchist standpoint. And then it's just like, I don't know, it's like 20 people scratching a chalkboard at the same time for them. They just can't handle it. And I get it. I mean, when I started the show, I was pretty anti-political, but I still voted because it was like wired into me like you're supposed to vote. And I would just go vote third party just like to show like the middle finger, show them and like, you know, Along the way, it just all fell apart for me because every single thing that mattered was not connected to that world. And I, let's kind of turn the corner here because that's what happened to you. And where, where did this lead you with some of the things and skills that you've developed? Because I pick on you because you're a pain in the ass at workshops, but I, I've actually been really impressed with the work that you've done and the things you've developed over the years that I've watched you do. Well, it's taken a while to get to the point where I even thought, could I be a guest on your show? Because I've, you know, I've wanted to, I've even said, even thought about it in the past, but I'm like, I don't really have a story to tell. I don't have, I'm not like the duck egg guy. Like that's John Daly's shirt. I'm pimping him today. Uh, you know, I don't have a specific claim to fame per, per se, but I started, I started looking this year at all the things that I've done. And, um, you know, by the way, when I met you, you were a men artist, you weren't total anarchist. So, People come to you on a when you're on a different you, you've evolved over that 14 years. I would imagine that it's kind of weird, but with the with things happening today, and I'll get to your question. The things happening today, people are coming onto your show. They're coming on at their spot. Maybe you're way advanced than where you were when I met you, but then they may be too because there's been a lot of shit happening the last two years, and people are starting to become aware. So it may be maybe the it's still just as easy an on ramp to make that transition. Uh, I just, you know, wished it would have been a little bit faster for me, but uh, I was at a point, you know, you remember I, I started a podcast, that same, that same um, prepper convention I, I met you at, uh, William Forston, the author of One Second After, about an EMP, and it's set in that neighborhood over there and near Na- Asheville. And uh, I had started a podcast about the show Revolution, which was, I thought about an EMP because the lights were going out and I took uh, me and my buddy said, Hey, let's do this fan cast podcast and let's talk about what happens when the lights go out. And so you've kind of ragged on me like, come on, Jake, that's a, a very small percentage uh, thing that you're prepping for. And you can't prep for something like that. You need to prep for the five things that people need to prep for. And then you'll be ready for almost anything. It's just how long can you go? But, uh, I, uh, I, I came from that situation where I was thinking of the big things that were going to happen. But then I started doing things like the first thing I did when I moved back from England was I walked down the front door of my porch. My wife bought the house without me. She moved back six months before me. She bought a house in an HOA. We had never been in an HOA. Um, and I didn't really know what, you know, that it was an evil thing. And it is. I would never go back in an HOA. And so anyway, she bought this nice little house in, a, in a, a nice neighborhood. I walked out and my front yard was full of clover. And I, I was standing there and I thought, something is wrong. What's wrong with this scene? Um, there's something missing. And I, I finally realized there were no honeybees. When I was growing up as a kid, you walk out there, you could hear the buzz. 
it'd be full of honeybees. I'm like, what in the hell is going on here? So I did a little research and I heard about, well, the bees might be, you know, getting, uh, having a hard time and, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 uh, the different theories they were having about why bees were, seemed like they were going away. And I, I decided at that point, you know, maybe I ought to be a beekeeper and, and help the bees. And, uh, but it took me five years before I pulled the trigger. But I became a beekeeper, started making, uh, started, uh, collecting honey and I started rescuing bees and out of different structures, people would, I would find out about a, a bees in somebody's garage, et cetera. So I learned that skill. And then I started coming to your workshops and I started learning other skills. I learned how to can. My mom always canned when I was a kid. My dad always had a, uh, a garden. We had a, a wood stove. So, you know, we were all, always hauling wood and going to get firewood i mean you know you grew up we grew up with a lot of those kind of skills but you didn't value them as skills kind of like what you did and your youth it's just the way you grew up so i went back to some of that uh, started canning food and then uh you know started stacking food and then just started it just just the little things that you do along the way or how to make kombucha uh and and uh and then I started doing other things. Uh, every time I go to one of your workshops, I'm going to learn some kind of skill. But more than that, I'm going to meet some really cool people and network with people because we got a really good um, network here in Tennessee. The TS, the Tennessee GSD crew, the Get Shit Done crew, Nicole and Nighthawk and and Tactical Redneck and Sean Mills and a bunch of us. We get together on a regular basis and do stuff. And so. Uh, over that period of time, I've just continued to stack my skills, but nothing, you know, nothing you can point to and say, wow. But if I took you on a tour of my house and said, look at all the freeze dried food I've got on my shelves, you'd say, holy shit. I mean, um, I freeze dried over 450 pounds of ground beef. And, and that's just one thing. I do raw, I, I freeze dry a gallon of raw milk every week to make, uh, uh, you know, make milk powder. And I make butter with the cream and, and I freeze it. And then I, I do uh, cheese and pork chops and all types of high caloric shit. I don't do shit like, uh, you know, gummy bears and Skittles like Nicole's doing. <laughs> now, you don't to, I don't know if you know that. That's what she's doing now. Yeah, she's, she's freeze-drying candy. She's doing Skittles <laughs> and candy corn and crap like that. Apparently, it's like she's selling a lot of it. Yeah. So well, I was impressed yeah, with you, though, know, like, you're not going to the store and buying a gallon of milk every week. You're getting milk from the Amish yeah. in a trade barter arrangement, and you actually made, you know, the economics of the freeze dryer make sense. Like, you came up with a way to, first of all, you bought it used, so you didn't pay retail for it. Then you came up with ways to acquire product for no or reduced cost. Nicole yeah. kind of made hers work because she's, well, she'll sell anything. Effectively. No, and, I don't, and they kind of went in on it as a group too. They didn't like yeah, one yeah. person going and buy a five thousand dollar machine. I'm like, if one, you know, if you want to put up some freeze dried food, you can put a lot of freeze dried food up for five grand. Somebody else did all the work, but y'all got both got in different ways creative with ways to make that pay off. Yeah, it's not five grand. It's about twenty five, twenty seven hundred. I got mine for twelve hundred. I had a, uh, I used a, a software program called IFTTT. If this, then that. Just to basically it cobbles together different uh, software packages, so I can make Craigslist send me an email anytime somebody posted harvest right or freeze dryer, and I had that 
recipe set up for over a year. It was live. I never got anything. And then about a year and a half, I got a hit on it. And somebody was selling a, almost a brand new freeze dryer for $1,200. And I bought it. Um, and I didn't really use it a whole lot at that point. I've used it. I played around with it and uh, whatnot. And then COVID hit. And in 2020, in March, when the shelves cleared out, like it was obvious that people were making a run on food. I mean, there was nothing. You couldn't get anything. I said, no, I need to, I need to get serious about my food prep. I already had a lot of food, but I, I cranked up my freeze dry 24 seven and it's been running 24 seven ever since. One of the barter deals that I did was, um, I met this couple that when COVID hit, they were supplying local restaurants with 50 to 60 dozen eggs a week. And all those restaurants shut down. They had nothing to do. They don't know what to do with those eggs. So they were like on next door trying to sell them. I made a deal with them and, and they didn't know anything about freeze dried eggs. And I, I gave them all the benefits. And I said, look, if you'll give me some eggs that you're probably going to feed to your dogs anyway. I'll freeze dry them and I'll give you 25% of the eggs back. I'll, uh, so if you'll get, so I, it takes 60 eggs on average to do a full load in my freeze dryer. And so, uh, that's four quarts of eggs, basically what happens when it gets done. I gave them a quart and I kept three. So I'm getting 45 eggs a week for free. I did that for months and months and months. And then finally we parted company. I think they had plenty or maybe they're back on their feet now and they don't want to keep doing that, but I got plenty of, eggs on the shelf and so i just look for high caloric density type foods that in in the in the long run uh, if i could if i needed to i could have a, a meal every day with a ground with a pound of ground beef making spaghetti or chili or something for 450 something days uh, and i'm not going to do it every day i'll probably you know you don't want to eat beef every single day like that so uh, i i got you know i subscribed to butcher box i bought a uh, I would have to say 2020 was my year of acquisition. I started really getting serious about making sure I, I had systems of redundancy. So while we're on HVAC. We've got a 5,000 square foot, uh, 100-year-old schoolhouse that we renovate and live in. It's basically two houses in one, 3,000 on, on the schoolhouse side, and there's about 2,200 on the other side. That's a mother-in-law apartment. My mother-in-law actually lives in there. And so... It's 12 foot ceilings on my side of the house. It's hard as hell to keep the heat that place. My first electric bill when I, um, and I didn't have the, the water heater running, nothing. It was, uh, the, the place was uninsulated, but my, my, uh, uh, floor guy said, look, I got to get the temperature, you know, 72 degrees. And I need to leave it there so I can let the wood acclimate before I do any work. I said, well, can we do it at 68 degrees? <laughs> he said, yeah, we can do that. It was $799 for my first electric bill. So I had to, uh, I had to do a lot of work. I, I did some spray foam insulation in that place. And now my electric bills are around 400 to 450 in the winter time. But then I decided, you know, I can't count on just electricity to heat my place. So I, I installed a thousand gallon propane tank. And then uh, I put in two fireplaces that run on propane. Then I, 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 I got rid of two, two electric water heaters and replaced it with an instant propane hot water heater. So I'm taking the, the load off of the electric grid and using propane. And then, um, and I got kind of lucky too. Uh, when I bought in, anytime you buy, uh, get a propane, the first time you get it, they generally give you some kind of introductory pricing. And I was able to get 89 cents a gallon. I filled that sucker up, that 
over the course of the last year, prices have gone through the roof. This past summer, I was able to do a pre-buy for the year. And based on how much you've used, they can let you buy so much and go ahead and prepay it. I prepaid for 1800 gallons, uh, paid $1,800, oh, 1800 gallons, excuse me, 1800 gallons. And, uh, I'm so glad I did that now because I still, I still got about, I think, 800 or 1200 gallons left before that I can have delivered prices. They say now is a 10 year. You have a credit for that. You have a credit for that amount. They owe you. Yeah. So I locked in my rate on that. So I'm just looking for things like that. I mean, you had a guy that had a brilliant idea that called in or wrote into you and said, Hey, you know, I like your 12 gas can rotation um, for storing gas, but, I just decided maybe I could get a bulk tank. He called his local co-op or something like that, and he got one. They actually provided the, the tank for free. Yeah, and we looked into it. We can't do it here because we don't use enough. Like, that's really more for farms and stuff like that where you get a tractor, you know, running on it. But we're, we're actually looking at, like, we might have to buy the tank, but there's nothing that stops me from dumping gas in a tank every time I go to the – and then you ha- if you put the tank up on stilts, you got gravity so you don't need power. And that might be the easiest way to store gas, even if you don't have that available. But if you're using enough, you can get a contract where the fuel truck comes by like once a month, fills it up, you pay a bill, and you'll pay a little more than you will at the pump. But you know, well, what's the what's the what's the value of 500 gallons of gas sitting yeah. there and constantly being rotated by somebody else's labor, right? Like, you know, I mean, so there's a lot well, of ways to to, to do stuff like that. I actually pulled the trigger on that. I um, and my co-op weren't going to give me a tank either, so I had to buy a tank. And I, I bought a 550 gallon tank, and which is the minimum. 500 gallons is the minimum that they'll is the break point where they give you a little bit of reduction on the price per gallon. I didn't want to do a 200 or 250 or whatever, so I did a 550. I put an electric pump on it. Uh, it's run on 12 volt. I scavenged a couple of batteries off of a wheelchair. The guy across the street scrapped. He's like a 600-pound life guy, and uh, the batteries were still good. I guess the the rest of the chair, maybe the motor goofed up. Anyway, um, and I'm uh, I'm going to be putting a a solar panel on the top of my little shed. I'm building a shed around the the gas pump, so it'll – but I can just put a – right now, I just charge it up every now and then, but it doesn't use that much anyway. So now I got my own personal gas station. Co-op delivers non-ethanol fuel, and um, the last time I bought it, it was three oh nine a gallon. Right now it's like three eleven, and at the pump at Kroger, regular gas is about that price. So I'm okay, um, not bad on that. But I've got non-ethanol gas. I've also bought a hundred and fifty gallon diesel tank, which I did put on a. Um, it's a, a gravity-fed system because I have a little diesel tractor. A hundred and fifty gallons will probably last me three years for, for for as much as I use that thing. Uh, so yeah, I just I'm, I, I do sleep better at night. And on top of that, I've got a bunch of thirty-five uh, gallon and fifteen gallon. Uh, plastic barrels that I've just kept kept filling up with gas. I probably got another 300 gallons in my shed. And so I'm just rotating that stuff and I'm putting stay bill in some of it. And then uh, I also have a, I bought an, an 83 uh, Land Cruiser this year, an FJ60. I, I bought it out of Honolulu and had it shipped over here. 
and it runs it runs better on non-ethanol. And so, I mean, I'm getting it for about the same price. I, can, I mean, delivered to my house. Can't beat that. You know, you said 2020 was your year of acquisition. It was for a lot of us that had been living the lifestyle that we talk about here all the time because if you had reserves, when everybody freaked out, they were buying shit you didn't need, which meant all the stuff that you wanted, not necessarily needed, went down in price. Like, I bought a car pretty much for cash that that I bought for $24,000 at a dealer cost of thirty two. And it's sitting on lots right now that this, you know, one year newer, but for like 38.5. And I bought it for 24. And it, you know, it was a sports car. It was a, it was a fun thing, but you know, I wanted one my whole life. And I'm like, mm-hmm. you ain't going to get a brand new car for that price. You can't buy a freaking like Nissan Ultima stripped down for 24 grand and. I think, you know, that's just an example that there were so many cherry pick opportunities, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, right? It was like everybody freaked out and wanted to buy beans. And most of the people doing it didn't even know how to cook a dry bean. And then you could just walk in and buy a car that's damn near a $40,000 car for $24,000 if you had the money. And there was so many things like that. And then the thing I like about your, your freeze dryer story is, the number one ingredient in that story that resulted in you acquiring it for what you did was patience. You set that trigger alert up and you didn't go like, well, I'm not going to get one at that price. So let me go break out the Amex and pay four grand or three grand or whatever the hell they cost depending on size. You waited because you knew sooner or later, somebody be like, why'd I buy this damn thing? And what can I get for it? And if you waited long enough, then you get to capitalize on that other person's with Dave Ramsey. Remember Dave Ramsey? You mentioned him earlier called stupid tax, right? Yeah. Like maybe it's not dumb to buy a freeze dryer, but it's dumb to not buy a freeze dryer without doing the math first and know what you're going to do with it. Because all of a sudden now you're sitting on a $2,500 desk paperweight. You don't know what to do with it. You, well, wait, I have to buy the food that goes in it. Like you had a plan and you had patience to wait for that plan to execute. Well, it's even, it's interesting. The person that did sell it, um, classic story they she was i finally deduced that she was getting a divorce from her husband they live way out in the country and inside a, a, a fence compound with two houses they had every prepper thing that you could ever want and never used it they had the glenn beck uh solar generator never been broke out of the box brand new this uh freeze dryer been used about three times look brand new so it looked like to me that that guy was one of the guys kind of like me that Felt like, oh, I discovered that shit's going to happen. I better get things in order. And they just started buying stuff. He had everything. I mean, and he wasn't around. And so they, she must have just said, yeah, we're getting rid of all this shit. And she's moving back to North Carolina. So I, I came out on top on that. I found another freeze dryer from another divorce that I bought for $1,200. And I held it for about a year. And then when COVID hit, I sold it for $2,300. People started bidding it up. And so technically... I've got my freeze dryer for free if you look at it from a I technically nothing. No, you got your freeze dryer for free. I'll, I'll say that flat out. If you did that, you got your freeze dryer for free. Let's talk about what you're doing now. You have a business model where you're flipping raw land. And I, I've talked okay. about that as an idea for a long time. How'd you get into that? How's it going? Um, okay. and what, what, what's working with it? What, you know, what do you want to do better with it? I have to give a, a tribute another TSP member, uh, for me, even learning about this business model. Tim Flood, I don't know if you know Tim Flood. 
so Tim, he's down there near you somewhere. He's in Texas. Um, he was on Facebook on the survival podcast group and back when it was being used. And, uh, he, one day he just posted, well, I guess I'm going to have to start flipping raw land for, um, going into business for myself, flipping raw land. Cause I just got laid off of my job and, uh, and people got, well, I hope it works or congratulations. And, you know, hope, you know, so they were, I was like, you know me, my superpower is asking questions. And I said, wait a minute, what in the hell is flipping land? What does that mean? And he said, well, it's this. I said, well, what about this? And then we went private and started having a conversation. And then I said, look, Tim, I've got this webinar software. I can actually bring you on. This is before Zoom. I had the webinar jam. I said, look, I could bring you on like this right here. And can I interview you, just me and you, so I can record the conversation, so I can learn how to do this? He goes, yeah, sure. But if you want to learn it, you can just go over here to uh, landacademy.com. I said, well, well, wait a minute. Are you telling me you didn't think up this idea? There's somebody else that's like teaching it? Is it kind of like a membership site or something? He goes, yeah, that's exactly what it is. And that's how I discovered it. And um, so I started listening to their podcast and, and going online and, and looking at all their stuff. And they're the real deal. They've been doing it for like 20 years. They've bought and sold over 15,000 properties. And they teach you how to actually do this business model. The guy that you had on about a month or so ago, that guy, he had like 700 properties in his uh, inventory. That's what he does. He's, it's the same exact model. He probably learned it from that same group. Um, I have a feeling, though, he's doing a lot of desert properties. To have that many properties are probably the really cheap properties that you can you can buy desert property for five, for 50 to $100 an acre. Yeah, I have a feeling he's buying like several hundred acres and chopping it into smaller pieces so people can afford it. I have Maybe. That he's doing something like that. Because he has a lot of shit that's like one and eight, you know, 1.8 acres, 2.3 acres, stuff like that. And honestly, I, when I look, occasionally I look at it like West Texas and all, it's just, it's too desert for me. But you don't see a lot of stuff under 25 acres in, on those properties. Like people, they're like, you, you go to like, I can get 500 acres for how much? Oh, it's there. You know, and it's like, yeah, no. Well, cause I live in Tennessee. I started in Tennessee. So basically the business model is you shotgun mail to anybody that has unimproved property. Now you can determine what size property you want to uh, go for. Do you want to go for? really small acreage near the cities, like infill lots where you can maybe build a house on it. Or do you want real property? And that's what I like. I like real property. So we were going for five acres and up, whatever the up is. It could be a 3,000 part, 3,000 acre parcel. I didn't care. We were making offers for, you know, a couple of million dollars. And if, if they had accepted that offer, I don't have $2 million, but I have a group of people that have money. You never have a shortage of money in this uh, business model. It's finding the deals and the deal flow is the work not finding the money to pay for it. And so I mailed my first mailer out um, about three years ago. I sent it to DeKalb County, which is where Nicole lives. I didn't realize that, but I found two parcels. The first two parcels I bought, one was $3,296. It was 4.3 acres. And then the other parcel was 5.7 acres. I paid 4029 for and I first got into this, a good buddy of mine who we're always talking about making money. He's an entrepreneur. I said, Hey, Danny, um, I'm going to be doing this. You ought to take a look at this. No, ain't nobody going to sell you land for 25 cents on the dollar. Are you nuts? I said, No, man, you need to go listen to these podcasts. I'm telling you, it's true. It actually works if you'll do it. Oh, bullshit. 
anyway, when I, I bought those two properties, his eyes, uh, eyebrows went up. And then there was somebody else in that same mailer called me and said, hey, look, uh, you sent me two letters on two parcels I have, but I actually have four parcels. I want to sell all of them together. And it was going to be around 20 grand to buy it. And so I went with, with the Danny. I said, look, dude, I don't want to put 20 grand. You want to go in 50-50? Let's go. And he said, yeah, let's go look at it. We went and looked at it. It didn't work out. But I said, hey, man, do you just want to go in business with me, 50-50 partners? Because he's a smart dude and he's also got resources. And he said, yeah. And he actually refunded me every uh, half of everything I'd paid in at that point for the, for the land, for the mailers, for the membership, all of that. So we've been part of He bought into what you had had acquired at that point. So he, yeah. he didn't just become a partner. He bought no. yeah. half yeah. the value of the business. Exactly. Okay. And so at that point, we started mailing, and we've had some home runs. With the, now, the two that we bought were actually in HOAs. <laughs> I'll never do that again. But we sat on them for about a year. I wound up selling the thirty-two, the the first one that we bought for thirty-two ninety-six. We sold it for eight thousand, and the second one we bought for four thousand twenty-nine. Sold it for twelve. So that it took a year to do that. But that's not our business model. Our business model is we want to turn it fast, like in a month or two. But even a year, what's the return on that investment? You can't get that in mutual funds, stock market. You might get it in Bitcoin. And you might not. Are you doing anything with this land at all to improve its value, or are you just flat flipping it? No, I, I, those I flipped. Uh, we bought 30 acres in Shelbyville. It was a perfect uh, developable property. It was a rectangle, had road frontage all the way down. It had power going right through the center of it. Uh, had water, had natural gas, um, had, I think, Internet. Just didn't have septic. or, or um, And so we cut that thing up into six five-acre lots. We hired a perk guy to come out there, and out of the six lots, five of them perked. There was one he couldn't get a perk site on. So then we just took it and 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 and, and smashed it against the next one, and so it was a 10-acre lot. We got into that. We bought that 30 acres for 40 grand. We we spent 32000 on uh, forestry mulching, uh, surveying, perk work, and the commissions and closing costs, and we sold out for two hundred fifty-eight thousand. So we—that was a home run. I don't know that you'll come across those every day. I will take one of those a year. <laughs> and uh, and in fact, we probably could have made three hundred and sixty. We probably could have made an extra hundred thousand. It's just uh, we couldn't get the perk guy to get out there. He's busy. I mean, you can't get those guys to work. They're too busy. They're like three or four months out. And three or four months out was in the middle of uh, 2019, and then fall came on, and then started raining, and then then his son died, who run who works in the business with him, and he just kept getting put off, and then 2020 hit. <laughs> so we, if we could have sold it back in 2019, there's no doubt I could have made an extra hundred grand on that property, but uh, we had to sell out and take what we could get. We did pretty good. Uh, we bought another piece of property for twenty thousand dollars. In Winchester, Tennessee, didn't do a thing to it and uh, sold it for 140. Um, but we're looking at a piece of property right now. So right now, anybody, uh, you guys are. I just listed this, but if anybody's looking to, for a reason to come to Tennessee, you've been looking for. I want to get out of the big cities. Jack's talked me into it. I need to find me a place to build a cabin or build a homestead. I've got 18 acres down in Pulaski, Tennessee, which is seven minutes off of I-65 
going towards uh, down towards uh, Huntsville, Alabama, just on the side of Tennessee line. Beautiful piece of property, sent up on a hill. Uh, it's 18 acres, but we had the surveyor. We wanted. We said, shoot us a line and split that thing in half if we want to divide it and sell it in two parcels. And he did. We hadn't recorded that way. It's still one parcel, but we can do it that way. And then we had the uh, perk work done, and we had two four-bedroom sites. Um, so technically, we could sell two nine-acre lots with a four-bedroom house site on it, or you could buy it 18 acres and, and build you a compound or build one house and sell off the other half and get part of your money back. But it's a so it's on top of a hill. The uh, it's a big hill. It takes uh, actually right now it takes a four wheel drive to get up that hill. It has a driveway up there, but it's a beautiful piece of property if somebody wants to. It's got plenty of room up the top. A guy lived up there for fourteen years in an RV, and he kept it like a big yard. And it's I don't know. I put a I put a YouTube video out here. If you're on if you're on the Telegram channels, it's on there. You can go check it out. Or if you want to list it on your um, if you want to list it for your for our folks that want to take a shot at it, I've got a YouTube video, a tour that I did in my four-wheel drive. I just drove around and, and narrated. But yeah, on that one, we thought about doing other stuff. We we, kept, we we if we go whole hog on that, we would put another driveway in on the other half of the property. So if we cut it in half, it's got two parts. Just got a driveway over here. We can put another driveway over here for about ten thousand with new gravel and culverts and whole nine yards. And then, pe then two people could have two private drives in a very secluded, on a hilltop. There's two springs at the bottom of this thing. It's out in the country. It's a picture postcard. It looks out over on the backside of it at the top of the hill, 250-acre uh, cow farm. So there's beautiful views on the back. So it's really secluded. Anyway, yeah, we look for opportunities where we can, if it makes sense to improve a piece of property that way. You, there's a, there isn't such a thing as a best use. I mean, I, I heard about a guy who bought wetlands. He can't do anything with wetlands. But he bought it with the idea that county government had a program to buy wetlands so that they could use it in this kind of like a carbon swap, but it was like wetland swap. So if a guy wanted to build a big mall over here or, or something commercial that's going to create uh, uh, revenue stream for the county government with taxes, and it happens to encroach on a wetlands. As long as the guy would buy some wetlands over here to replace it, these guys bought this wetland dirt cheap and sold it to the county for forty-five thousand dollars an acre. I'd like to get in on some of that action, but that's pro probably few and far between. How are you finding this land? You're saying you're sending out shotgun mailers like everybody, but where? Where are you starting with it? Because this is obviously not land you're looking on Realtor.com or Zillow. No, for. you can't right. do that. That's how you sell it. It's not how you buy it. Yeah, yeah, people, you're you're actually buying property from people that are not. They don't have it up for sale. Uh, we use data and we use online tools. In fact, when I'm, I'm going to be doing a session at your next workshop on how to vet property in your underwear, you know, sitting at home in front of your laptop uh, using uh, different uh, 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 different tools. So. All of the, there's 3,300 counties in the U.S., and all of the property assessors keep their data and their own database. But there are big data companies who have contracted. Black Knight Logic is one of them. Uh, there's about three different companies. Data Tree is another. And they contract with these different uh, assessors, and they buy their data, and they aggregate it into their database. And what's weird is, is that, 
if you look at Tennessee's uh, database and pull property in Tennessee, and then I compare it to the property that I pull in Tarrant, was it you're in Tarrant? What's the name of your county? I'm in Tarrant. Tarrant, yeah. Tarrant. So if I pull if I pull data from that county, there's about 330 fields of data that you can get back. Some of the data that my assessor is going to keep, yours is not, and vice versa. So these guys keep it all. And then you can go in and say, uh, data tree, show me any property in Rutherford County between five acres and 17 and, 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 and a half acres. And, and I want it unimproved. I don't want any structures on it, unimproved property. And it'll send me every single parcel back and do that data query. I can download it. I'll have all of the assessor data information, which includes the owner and their mailing address and the property address and all that. So then you can take all of that data. So you massage the data and figure out how much do I want to offer per acre in this county? Or do I want to get granular and get down to the zip code level? Or do I even want to get down even uh, to the APN scheme and the way the county lays out their, uh, their, their assessment data map is small squares. And each square has its own prefix, and you can literally get down to neighborhood pricing if you want to. And then you figure out, okay, the going rate is about 5000 an acre in this area. I'm going to offer $1,250. i am going to offer 25 to 35% of it. And, uh, and so you'll send out, you know, our last mailer, we sent out 13,600 13, mailers to uh uh, Chattanooga, Hamilton County, and about five surrounding counties. And we got a ton of data, a ton of people coming back to us. A lot of them were landlocked and, and mountain properties, which if it's a landlocked property, unless you've got the cojones and you've got the specialized knowledge and, a, and an attorney with nine inch uh, teeth, then it doesn't make sense to, to try to fool with those. But it's a numbers game because you're smelling the people that they own the land. It's like, oh, uh, I've been paying on the taxes for 22 years, or I inherited this from my dad, and I didn't even know he had owned the property until I got notified from the estate. And I don't want to do anything with it. I live in Portland. I'm a soy boy. I'm out there protesting the police every night. I'm never going back to that redneck area in Tennessee. And they get a letter from me saying, I'll buy your property for this amount of money. Like, sold. Easy button. And, uh, and they sell it. People can't believe people will sell a piece of property that cheap. And you ask, well, why would they? And it's, it's really the same concept as going to a yard sale. Have you ever get, do you ever go to yard sales, Jack? I don't. I have enough shit. But I, I get what you're saying. I mean, the other side of it is if they have no idea really what it's worth, it's just something that's there, and they have no emotional attachment to it. Uh, that's the big thing. That's the big thing. Like, when I'm dealing with real estate myself, as soon as I realize the seller has an emotional attachment to the property, I'm out. I'm done. I don't even want to talk to you anymore. Like I know that we're never going to come to a reasonable negotiated rate because you're pricing in things in your head versus things in the value of the property. But when you get somebody with no emotional attachment, even if they think, well, maybe I can get, you know, like you're offering, let's say four grand for property. They're thinking, well, maybe I can get six, but I can get four right now. I don't have to do jack shit. That thing's and they're like, well, who would I contact? Like it's five states away or whatever, and like this man's gonna give me a check, and I can stop paying the county bill. Fine, uh, and, yeah. and if if they just happen on that day, be like, I need a new transmission to my car or something. Well, then it's like 
oh, it's a sign. It's a sign from God that I'm supposed to sell my land or something, you know, or whatever, or from the soy God or whatever. Like it's time to sell. And if that happens, you know, and so you, like you said, you sell 13,000, which means the vast majority are no's. But that's, that's sales. That's just sales in reverse. It's sales as a buyer, right? Like you're basically selling somebody on the concept of selling you their property for less than it's worth. Yeah. And that's just, that's just a numbers game. The bigger the funnel, the more pops out the other end and what pops out the other end, then we filter what pops out into what actually works for us. It's exactly the same as the sales process. It it is exactly the same. And it's, and it's even, um, it's probably even more than you know about that because, um, I actually had a guy that said, you were an answer to my prayers. He had his, how he had his land listed for two years trying to sell it. The first one I bought, it was the very first property I bought. And he tried to get me and he raised my price to 5,000 and I got to looking at the price like, I don't know, man. I don't, I, I don't think, I think I'm going to have a hard time billing on it. It's slope on the back of it. And he finally came back and said, okay, I'll just take your offer. And even then I was like, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but when he finally closed the deal, I met him at my bank so we could notarize a signature. I did a self close. And he said, uh, you know, you're actually an answer to my prayer. I had made a, maybe not a prayer, but he had made a New Year's resolution that he's going to sell that property no matter what this year he wanted to get it done. And then my letter came in. He said, it's like divine intervention. But, um, yeah, there are people out there that when you, when you send out 13,000 letters, it's better than sales because they don't, most of the no's are like, they wad your letter up and throw it in the trash can. Now there is a handful of people that get so pissed off at your offer that they will call you and cuss you out, say nasty stuff. Or they'll take the time to take your letter and put it in a new envelope and put a, a stamp on it and write, why did you waste your time sending me this letter? Waste your stamp. I'm like, okay, you just wasted one too. But I don't, I call those hate calls. We, we, um, we, we spell it H-A-I-G-H-T, hate calls for fun. And, uh, and I had some good ones. Um, I had a guy literally call me up and he said, uh, so did you just offer me this twelve thousand or a hundred twenty thousand? I said oh, it's actually twelve thousand. Okay, I want to make sure about that. So if you're here right now, I'd cut your nuts off and hang them up to dry. <laughs> uh, but I've learned that it is Tennessee. Yeah, it is Tennessee. I mean, <laughs> but I, I have had some fun. Uh, but what I've also found is it is a sales te- it is a sales process because I don't get upset about those. I don't care if they cuss me out. The only thing that would ever bother me if a guy threatened me. I had one guy threaten to come to my next time. If I ever contact him, he threatened me. I said, what are you going to do? I want him to say it because I was recording the phone call. <laughs> I don't think he had the, uh, the cojones to actually do it, but most of the, I just take it and uh, let it roll off my back. And when somebody starts asking, why don't you send me this? I said, look, I'm not sending it for you. This wasn't directed to you. You know, who I'm going to send it to, I'm sending it to that guy that, he lives, he's a soy boy that lives in Portland and he's protesting the police, uh, every night throwing firebombs at him. And his dad bought the property in Tennessee and left it to him in his will. And he thinks we're rednecks and he's never going to come out here and do anything with this land. So, so look, if I buy that land from him for 25 cents on a dollar, I could sell it to you for 75 cents on a dollar. And we both come out and somebody's going to actually use the land and appreciate it. I'm buying it from people like that. And they're, Oh, okay. And they, you know, go about their business. I've had other investors who come in and said, are you really buying land this cheap? And I said, well, are you wanting to sell? And he goes, no. 
But uh, if you ever get some land like that, I'd like to buy land like that. So let me ask you this. If I buy that land like that from somebody else, would you be willing to buy it for 75 cents on the dollar? Do you buy land? He goes, yeah. So I actually start building a buyer's list of people who are interested in uh, a deal on land. And, and they're happy to get it for 75 cents on the dollar. We both come out ahead. So I just use that. Uh, you know, I'll take advantage of the yard sale concept of you walk up to a yard sale and find a $100 uh, tool. A DeWalt tool for that's worth a hundred dollars, like, and he's got marked for ten. Why the heck would he sell it for ten? Because he don't want it. He wants to get rid of it. Because he needs ten dollars. He needs ten dollars more than he needs a tool, and doesn't have a buyer. That's pretty simple. Now, with all this shit going on, you're going to start jacking around with cattle. What's what made you decide that all of a sudden you won't be a cattle baron? Well, Trump talked me into it. Can you see that? I thought I would trigger a few people out. Making America graze again. I almost was going to name my, um, just YouTube. keep going. I got my own red hat. I'll be right back. You go ahead. Okay. <laughs> so I almost thought about going with that slogan. I'm going to vlog this idea. I'm going to start up a cattle operation. I'm going to vlog it. I'm going to put it into a YouTube channel because it, you know, I don't hate money and eventually it could turn into something. And I went to a field day where a particular breed that I'm interested in and the guy, was giving these hats away and so like because <laughs> this is making America- you on the audio only i have a red hat that looks like a maga hat and it says relax idiots it's just a fucking hat we actually yeah. have these for sale in the tsp gear shop okay and i i put on a red hat sorry for you guys on the podcast it says make america graze again and I got this at a a, a field day for a, a particular breed of cow that i want to get and the guy was giving them away. And I actually triggered somebody within 30 minutes of leaving that event. I was driving down the interstate. I put the hat on. I was doing a selfie. And this lady pulled, I pulled up next to this lady. And she's, I look over. She's like cussing me. And her arms are flailing. And because, you know, they're triggered, right? It's funny. But, uh, yeah. Um, so about 10 years ago, my friend Danny, who's my business partner now, we had talked about jacking around with cows back then. And we actually looked at a... Um, um, a, a farm that a guy had that he was leasing. He had cattle on it and he had it pimped out. It was cross paddock at water points, all this stuff. And, um, he sold all his cows due to a drought and he wanted to sublease it. We came real close, but we didn't do it. I discovered back then, I discovered a, a, a breed of cow coming out of, uh, of England called Red, um, Red Gummit. What's the name of it? Red Devons. And they're they're a short legged cow, heritage cow, smaller body. Uh, they do they they actually marble up and finish on grass really well, which is very unique. Uh, they were almost extinct, and this guy in Tennessee and a couple other guys single handedly saved that breed from extinction. There was like 600 of those things left on the planet Earth, and then they brought it back. And we were trying to figure out how we could get in the cattle business and get some red devons. A guy had like 50 head over here close to me. We just never pulled the trigger, and we talked about it. He grew up around cows. His father-in-law had them. He helped his father-in-law. So this past year or so, he bought some land and built a house on it. And then he called me up one day. He goes, you know, between my house and my my son bought some land next to me. We've got about 22 acres. I think I could put a fence up and put some cows out there. And um, and so I uh, I thought, I wonder if I can get any cows on my property. i got five acres out in the country, but I don't have any forage. i got a front yard. I said, crap, that ain't going to work. 
I literally stopped across the street from my neighbor because they have a farm. And the, the guy had passed away about three years ago from cancer. I moved there in 2015, and I went over there probably a half dozen times just to introduce myself to the guy. He was never well enough to even come to the door. And I never met him, and he passed away. But I met his wife, and I stopped in, and I said, hey, uh, Miss Vicky, I said, uh, me and my partner, buddy are thinking about raising some cattle. We're looking for a place to put some. I was wondering if I could make an arrangement with you. Long story short, Jack, she has 53-acre, totally perimeter fence, woven wire fence, a barn, small pond, and uh only thing that's happening on it, she's got a deer hunter up there that, that deer hunts, and he bush hogs it about twice a year. And um, and so she said, well, uh, maybe, uh, but the fence is in bad shape. I said, don't worry about it. I'll fix the fence. I'll fix your barn. I'll keep the property. I'm going to improve your property. And, uh, we did went back and forth. We came up with a written agreement. She's let me use her farm at no cost. And she's literally, I, and I said, so you're willing to do this? She goes, yeah. I said, well, I came back a, a couple of days later. I said, look, how long are you willing to do this? Because if I come out and put, you know, fix the fence and do all this stuff and put cows on it, and then two years from now you say, I don't want to do it anymore, uh, I'm going to be kind of stuck. And she said, oh, no. If we go forward with this, you can do it for the rest of, of my life as long as I'm alive. And my daughter is going to get this farm, and she lives with me. And when we get together and do this, I want her in on this because she'll let you do it for her life. And they don't want to sell the farm. And so uh, we came up with a, a written agreement. And I have access. And it's literally, I can drive out of my driveway, cross the road into her son's driveway, back to a, a gate. I got a key to the gate. And I got a 53-acre farm over there at my access. I can do whatever I want to with it. So I thought I was going to put cows on it this year. This was back in February when we struck this deal. And um, it's just, and I asked her when I said, well, why do you, why are you letting me do this? Why do you care? If I, uh, uh, she said, well, because I'm just glad somebody's doing something positive with it. And it's not growing up into a jungle like it is right now. And literally, I've got a lot to go. I've talked to Greg Judy. I've talked to Joe Salatin. There's a lot of work to be done. It's full of little bitty cedars, maybe this high up to five or six feet. I mean, thousands of them. So i got to deal with that. I can't even put cows on right now. The, 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 I've learned through my research that there's not enough good forage to put, especially a mama cow with a baby. Can't do cow-calf pairs. Maybe a, what they call a dry cow. It's not uh, feeding another cow. And so I'm going to have to start with probably goats and sheep. Uh, I, so I was going to go with, I've got my logo. I've got my idea. I'm going to vlog it on uh, YouTube and, 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 you know, make the deal up, uh, on that way. And I thought, you know, cow, uh, Startup Cattle is my name. But now I'm thinking I need to change it to Startup Cattle and other remnants. Goat Rancher. Huh? Goat Rancher. Yeah, but I'm not going to stay as a goat rancher. That's yeah, the thing. That's why I, I probably I'm probably going to pick your brain at the work side on, uh, uh, shop on this for you and Nicole about you know how to what may be the best approach because I almost want to do startup cattle and other ruminants so it covers goats and sheep because I can't put I'm going to put cattle on it. that's what my main goal is but I got to start back here it's like the more research I did the more of a rabbit hole I went into the holy cow there's a lot of work to be done I've got to i got to solve my water problem. She's got a small pond about 25 foot in diameter. It holds about 30,000 gallons, and it's not in the best location. Now, my neighbor 
just to the east of me has a four and a half acre pond full of water. And it's 30 feet uphill from anywhere I need water. And so I struck a deal with him to siphon water off of that pond. And I'm going to show you how I used some of the tools I did uh, to vet the property on uh, elevation. And so I figured out how much line I needed for the siphon hose. And I bought some cheap um, uh, hose that, uh, that I could use, so irrigation hose, made me an intake, put it up there, and filled that little pond up in about three days. So I know the concept works. Cattle came in there, his cows, he doesn't do like Greg Judy. He doesn't fence his cows out of a pond. If you guys are going to have cows and you're going to have a pond, don't let your cows get in the pond. They ruin the pond. They spike it, kill all the fish, poop, and pee in it. And then it's just bad, bad all around. They erode the edge of the pond. They, uh, Greg Judy's working on one right now that the, 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 the dam wall side of it is about to erode and, and break through because the cows have done so much damage. And so, they came in there and stomped all over my, broke my intake and stomped the hose to a uh, flat as a fritter. I got to come, I'm going to trench a, a hose in, but uh, my goal is to, there's another area that looked like an old pond that'll hold about 200,000 gallons. And if I can uh, make that thing hold water, I, I, I asked you that question one time. If there's this old pond area and it's got some trees growing up in it. Should I leave? the trees standing, cut the limbs off of them and let the trunk stay in there for like a, a, a fish habitat. And you didn't really think that was a good idea, but, um, well, cause I don't think the pond will hold. I think trees for fish habitats, a wonderful idea, but I don't think, uh, an impounded pond like that with trees breaking through the impoundment is probably not going to hold. Uh, that's why it ain't that. I don't think it, I think it's a fine idea. I just don't think it's going to hold. Anyway. Um, so, I'm going, I'm backing up further. Like I went ahead and bought all my equipment to put in electric fencing and the supply chain, the struggle is real. Uh, I went to buy electric fencing, the reels and the, the, the fence post, the step in fiberglass fence post. Greg, Judy uses those. Um, you couldn't get them anywhere. And all of them said they'll be here in June. And I got June rolled around. I said, well, it's going to be a couple more months. I finally got them. So even if I hadn't been able to get cows, I wouldn't have been able to manage them. So I've got my equipment. I just got to start putting these things together. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you know, but Dr. Dr. Barry is doing sheep now. Uh, and, and so I, uh, he's basically saying, Jay, just go ahead and get some goats, man. You don't need to build a pond for goats. They don't drink that much water. Sheep don't drink that much water. You can just fill up a tub and you don't need to do it, but every three or four days, I said, okay, that makes sense. I'm going to go ahead and pull the trigger and get the goats going. I would do something, get something going and try to improve a piece at a time. And then as you get four or five acres kind of rehab, you can bring some a small amount of head onto that and then move the goats. And then you can, uh, you get, we'll, we'll get into that later. I'm sure all, yeah, these, I, all I, you I people, including this guy, I think you come to the workshop and pick my brain. That usually involves with Jake far more hours, time, and alcohol than I need to be putting in my body at this point. But, uh, <laughs> I think you owe me a consultation, though. I think I bartered for one on the barter blanket at one point. I never Your statute of sure. limitations has expired at this okay. point. We'll, we'll see. All right. Um, anyway, um, you're going to do this on YouTube and all we know that. Let's kind of wrap up here because we're over an hour now. Um, in all these different things you've done, you've had to have had some things that didn't go the way you expected or whatever. 
kind of talk about that from a standpoint of where do you think people hit blind spots in trying to do, you know, all of these things? I think part of it is just trying to like, they listen to you talk about all the things you've done and they're like, Oh, go, I'll do all that. 14 freaking years, people, right? It wasn't done in 14 days. Exactly. Um, that would be one of them. Is there any other thing you think really kind of jacks with people when they're trying to get their lifestyle into a more resilient, you know, self-sufficient manner? Yeah. They're friends and family that don't understand that. They, uh, you know, they, people are so, um, they're, they're dependent almost on what other people think. And I don't really give a shit what other people think. You know that. Uh, I, I get picked on a lot at your workshops, but that's the reason you guys probably do it. You deserve it, but you deserve it. Like, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to say what happened. The one thing you said, like, I was the cat that got kicked after work. And I'm like, you were, but sometimes the cat crapped on the rug, you know, and, <laughs> But no, you, you, we, 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 it wouldn't be the same without you. Once we shot you a few years ago, you've been a great citizen at the workshops ever since then. All it took was shooting you. I should have figured that out, you know, eight years ago. It would have been great. And we all go through an uh, evolution, you know, maybe I've matured a little bit since then. But, um, anyway, yeah, I was, I look back now, how damn obnoxious was that? I know it was, but somebody's got to ask the question. But I will say that. What stops people, I think, a lot of times is they don't believe they can do it, and they're afraid to ask somebody to teach them. And that's why I'm, your show is so important because you got people coming on saying, "I this is what I did. I built, I put quail in my garage, and I got twenty thousand eggs a year." And somebody, and then you can go to their website, or maybe they've got a blog or, or a blog or YouTube channel. And then YouTube's a great uh, teacher, so. So people just need permission sometimes, and uh, you can't let your family and your friends. Like my wife wasn't on board with prepping back in those days, but she is now. She's the one. She's the one that made me buy an EMP-proof vehicle. Like, come on, honey, that's not going to happen. But she's now figuring stuff out, and she's wagging behind me. She's like, well, what if an EMP is? It ain't going to. And if it does, it doesn't really matter. We got bigger fish to fry, and whether or not we got a, a vehicle to drive. So that's why I can sleep at night because I used to be like that. I used to be that kind of, um, but I think that's what holds people back is they're, um, they're worried about what their family says. Their family dogs them about it and they listen. Don't listen to people. Just do your own stuff Get and get with a group of people who will do it. If you're in Tennessee, find us on Facebook, the Tennessee GSD crew and learn about it and join up. Find the freedom cells that are, that John Bush has launched. We've got a few of them in Tennessee. Um, and get involved and just do it. I don't know. Uh, I don't think anybody listening to this podcast falls in that, in that category, right? Maybe somebody's going to happen across this podcast in the future. And maybe somebody will send this link out to somebody. Look what this guy's done in 14 years. I don't really think I've, I mean, I've done a lot of other stuff, you know, uh, that we haven't talked about. Um, but, um, but I, and I don't, I can't remember everything that I've done. You know, it's just, you start doing that stuff. You start stacking up your skills this year, I bought a chainsaw, and then I started watching YouTube and went down that rabbit hole on how to cut down a tree. It's, it's a real simple process. There's actually, you know, you you cut a lateral start, you cut a notch out, and you cut it on the back. I'm like, I never knew that. Um, but I need to have a chainsaw for this farm that I'm working on because there's a lot of blowdowns, and I need to get that stuff out of the way because it, it takes up valuable pasture space. What I will do, though, I will ask you, uh, once I get things launched, I really, I, I want to put about 30, uh, 30 episodes in the can for YouTube so I can launch one every day and have like a major launch 
I've got a, a business idea, a business plan on how I want to get that thing launched. I don't want to just start doing it and do a video here and do a video there. And, and I've been, I've, I've listened to about 400 uh, podcast episodes on how to launch a YouTube channel. I think when you say what, you know, what's your skill, Jake? Uh, how, how did you, how were you able to do this? I like to learn and I'm not afraid to ask questions, but I also like to learn and just, I find the expert that I can learn from, either through books, love reading books. I probably got 700 books in my library and they're all nonfiction. It's all how to marketing and leadership skills and self-improvement and, you know, uh, economics and all of that stuff. And I read and read and read and listen and I'm out more now more than ever. I'm probably YouTube because you can find everything you need on YouTube. It seems like. So I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does. I just say there is a point where you, you know, you learn as much as you can, but then pull the damn trigger, make shit happen, get shit done. We have people ask, what does GSD mean? It means get shit done. It's something that goes way back with this community. Um, I guess now that's got to go back six years or more uh, that we kind of, you know, like a German shepherd dog. Well, it means that too, but we're not talking <laughs> about that. Right? We're talking about getting shit done. Anyway, Jake, you've got a website uh, with your land flipping. It's called Bye Bye Land, and it's not B-Y-E. It's B-U-Y-B-U-Y land.com. And then he, Jake actually, you know, pays attention. So he sent me, like, every social media uh, website that he's on, all the communities in, everything like that. I've got that all in the show notes for people so that they'll be able to find it. If you're watching this on YouTube right now in the live stream, then this isn't true yet. But very shortly after this live stream ends, there's a link in the video notes that goes to the podcast notes for this with the audio file and all the other stuff that's involved. And everything is there uh, and will be there for those that are watching it later. So, Jake, man, it was, uh, it was a good interview, you know. Uh, we do pick on you sometimes, but that's because it's uh, it's easy and deserved. Uh, but... But we do love you, and uh, I appreciate you being with us today. And I think it's important to bring people on like yourself every once in a while. Like you said, I don't have like a thing that I'm known for or whatever. I don't care. What, what I really try to do is make sure at least maybe once every month or two, we're bringing somebody on. It's just somebody that decided I'm going to do this thing or this group of things, and they get it done. And I think that is inspirational because, like, you know, it, it, there is something about – People looking at somebody and just thinking, well, if they did it, then I can do it. And that's not always going to happen for people. They might say, well, because he did, doesn't mean I can do it. But if they, if they see it enough times, they'll pick a thing and a person that, that they want to emulate. So well, if he can do that thing, I probably, I, I, I think I could have done that anyway. And the fact that this guy did it, now I know I can do it. And I think it, for most people, it's the one you pick one thing, you do it. You actually surprise yourself, you get it done, and then you're like, well, what can I do next? And the confidence, every time you take a step, that confidence goes up, just like a baby learning how to walk. They take the first few steps, they fall on their butt, and, you know, their butt's low to the ground so they don't get hurt, and they're like, well, that was cool, you know, and then next thing you know, they're running, and you have to start protecting them from killing themselves, and I think we as preppers and homesteaders, we can get into that too. We start hitting sharp corners because we move a little too fast, and I think that comes from doing too many things at once. But I'd rather rein somebody in from activity than try to get them up off the ground. That zero to one is the most important move that people can make. And it's true. And it's it's a universal truth. So if you look at something like totally dis disconnected from this, like Bitcoin, going from zero to one, an absolute scarcity, you know, controlled, secure thing. 
everything after that was was really easy compared to going from zero to one. A new homesteader building that first project or getting that first livestock, whether it's just chickens or quail or whatever, zero to one. And then everything else is much easier. Like even if it's physically harder, it takes longer, costs more money, takes more time. In here, it's easier because I already did a thing I didn't think I could do. And so I appreciate you coming on, sharing you know, your story of zero to one and then everything that came after it. Well, I hope that um, I can come back when I've got my YouTube ready, ready to launch, where I've got it done and I've got stuff to show. And, and I'd, I'd, I'd love to come back if you ever have, have an opportunity to do that and talk about the uh, the cattle operation when I get to a point where I feel like, hey, the world needs to know about this now. Well, again, I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for being on with us today. Thanks, Jack. Appreciate it, brother. I hope you guys enjoyed that. It was a, a good discussion with a longtime friend. Um, don't let any of the, uh, I don't know, the razzing that Jake gets uh, make you think that he is not truly appreciated as a community member. It's just kind of the place he's fit in uh, after all these years. And uh, we, we do, like I said, we do love him. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you, if you like the show and the work that we do, one of the ways you can help support us And it's the, the painless, zero-cost way is if you're going to buy something online, before you buy it, go to tspaz.com first. That's all you got to do, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Start your online shopping there. As long as you start there, no matter what you buy, you'll help support us. You'll also see all the products that I've reviewed and recommended over the years. Uh, my brand here at TSP is Integrity. If, if, if I could have one wish that people think when they hear Jack Spearco, I don't care if you think he's a jerk and a dumbass, as long as you also think that the man has integrity. Even if I disagree with him, I know he believes what he says and he stands by what he says. That, that's it. That's all I could ever ask for. And I've tried to bring that into my product reviews at T-Spaz. If I don't own it, spent my own money on it, you know, I would not ask you to do so. And if I wouldn't buy it again, if it ran out or I needed another one, I, it won't, it won't stay in there if I change my opinion on it. It's real easy to do with books though, because was the book a good read? And I probably need to bulk up the amount of books at T-Spaz. This book I learned about from one of my long-term online mentors. I've only ever got to meet the man in person a couple times. Uh, but he is one of my, my greatest teachers in the world, Jeff Lawton, uh, of course, of the permaculture world. And it was a video of his I was watching. I don't even remember why. It was one of those videos I almost didn't watch it. And he just happened to mention this book in it. It's called The New Wild, Why Invasive Species Will Be Mankind's Sal or Nature's Salvation by Fred Pierce. And I was a little skeptical about this book, especially as hard as Jeff sold it, except it was Jeff. So, like, if you feel that way when I explain this book or when you hear the title, Well, it's Jack, okay? So give me the same courtesy I gave Jeff. This book does not say that you can just take any species from anywhere and drop it off anywhere else and not screw stuff up. It doesn't say that at all. What it does, it lays out a logical, fact-based, scientific rationale how 90% of the time or more, that's what actually happens. It's not actually a problem. And in the 10% of the time that it's a problem, there's the rare occurrence that's really a problem, kudzu in Atlanta, anyone. But most of the time, even where there's a problem, the scale of the problem is absolutely infinitesimally smaller than the supposed scale of the problem, the way the government reacts to it, the way that environmental organizations react to it. And, and sometimes it's just outright lies. Here's one example. 
He gives an example of a tree that's an invasive species in South Texas. And these rivers dried up down in South Texas. And they said, the trees dried up the river. Except there was a problem. When, when you actually looked at the claim, see, the trees didn't live where the river was dry. They lived downstream where the river was still running. But somehow, the trees were so powerful, they went underground for like 55 miles and dried the river out upstream of where they grew. Friends, this does not make any sense. This book just typifies how little we can trust science. When people say, I trust the science, if you don't understand what you say you trust, then you don't even trust, you have faith. And I don't believe that science as an institution, especially where it overlaps with government, can be trusted any longer. And we have to do our own research, and we have to learn from people who have done their research, and we have to base things on facts. And this book is one of the most eye-opening things I've ever read in my life. It's very seldom I read a book like this, and I'm actually fascinated through the whole thing. This one I was fascinated through the whole thing. I'm, I'm actually, right now, I'm, re I'm, I'm reading it again. I'm reading it a second time because there's so much in it, and there's so many things that I want in my mental arsenal for when somebody says, oh, this thing here is going to destroy the planet. And you're like, well, actually, did you know this, this, and this? You, you want to read this one. It will... It will do two things. It will help change the way you think about the subject. But the other thing it will do is it will give you hope. It will give you hope. You'll learn about a little rocky island that turned into a cloud forest just because they threw everything at it. And you start thinking about, well, maybe there's other places we could do such things. And I don't think, if you have 1% less left of trust for what the government says or what industrial science says, this will terminate it. It will kill it dead, and it belongs dead. It, dare I say, good friends, will vaccinate you against the bullshit of industrialized science. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up here. Um, and again, I'm not doing songs of the day this week. And I talked to John Adam, who was kind of my musical director for a long time, and I did my own thing for a while. I don't know what I'm going to do for the rest of the year yet. He's going to start providing me uh, musical programming again at, after the new year. I'll figure out what I'm going to do. So once again, uh, you get the full version of The Revolution is You. And this week, I just feel that maybe we need that. We need to uh, be kicked back into gear with the concept that we are those who control our own future. Uh, we really are. And, and I wanted to talk real here quick at the end about... You know, every day, whether I do a quote of the day or not, I usually put um, an image of a quote in the podcast feed because it just looks better when you share it that way and all. And, and today's quote I picked because of the subject Jake and I were talking about, and it fits the revolution issue very well. It's by Leonardo da Vinci, and he said, There are three classes of people, those who see, those who see when they are shown, and those who do not see. Jake has demonstrated in his life over the last 14 years, and I guess I've watched him for like the last seven or eight, that he is one who sees one shown. But I'm going to disagree with one of the greatest minds in history. I'm not disagreeing with the point he was making here. I'm disagreeing with it being taken literally. He said there's three classes of people, those who see, those who see when shown, and those who do not see. I think there's actually two classes of people. I think there's two classes. The first class is actually the first two put together. Those who see 
and also see one show. Okay? And what I mean by that is, even a mind like Da Vinci had to, at times, look at a thing and not comprehend it. But we know enough of, from his writings and history that we know he was the kind of person that if somebody could show him, he would then see. And I think we really divide that into two classes. Those who see, either on their own or with help, and those who will never see because they choose not to. Not because they're not capable. I mean, there are people that are mentally challenged to the point where I really believe they can't learn. But I think that is the vast, vast minority of people. I think the vast majority of people can understand all of the concepts that we talk about, but it's uncomfortable. So they are those who do not see, but they are those who choose not to see. I, I implore you to always attempt to be one who, when you do not see, will seek someone to show you. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. They gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're living for